I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Villains juggling dog turd. Mummies applying for library cards. I watched a movie called Blade Runner. All those moments will be spoiled in this podcast. Like deers without brains. Time to listen. This is Diabolical, the show where four long-suffering friends dissect films' most dastardly schemes, then compete to improve them. I'm your host, Craig, aka as Count Attacular, and this week's movie is Ridley Scott's seminal 1982 sci-fi masterpiece, Blade Runner. So, Peril Pals, take a Voight-Kampf test, get ready to meet your maker, and let's get Diabolical, shall we? I'm in. Good. We're all agreed? Uh, I guess so. Excellent. Then, in that case, welcome to this week's episode. As host for this week, I'm the Blade Runner assigned to retire the panel of peril, who will compete against me at the close of the show in a fight to the death, as we each try to come up with the best alternative plan for the movie villain of the week, before we vote to name this week's most diabolical. As ever, I am joined by three skin jobs... Please introduce yourselves, along with your function, and tell me, apart from Blade Runner, what is your favourite dick? <laughs> and we'll start with Adam, please. And Adam, I'm just going to specify, when I'm asking for your favourite dick, I mean the author who likes to call himself horse lover fat, Philip Kingston Dick. Don't know what the K really stands for. And, and not penis. Kryptonite. Uh. King's Mill. <laughs> Hello, this is Adam. And I am an entertainment slash leisure model of the Nexus 7. And my favorite dick is Total Recall, a 1990 version with good old Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sharon Stone. I, I would have guessed that. And isn't it great? Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Another bleak view of the future, but not quite as good as this one, I'd say. Not by some margin. It's not that bleak. Got a very happy ending. How can you call three boobs bleak? Yeah. <laughs> How dare you? Yeah, she dies. So, you know, the dream is over. Everybody dies. <laughs> she dies way in the future. So that still gives us a chance to both motorboat her at the same time. Are you in? Hello, I'm Ben. And my specialism is irritation slash meaningless platitudes. And my favourite dick is also Total Recall, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Funny enough, I would have guessed that as well. <laughs> but, you know, Total Recall, well well deserving of all the praise it's getting. Mm-hmm. Neither of them have the courage to pick the remake there, I see. Cowards. Absolute cowards. Uh, have you, either of you watched it? The Colin Farrell Total Recall? I like it. I actually do like it, yeah. No. Neither have I. <laughs> 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 I've watched it more than a couple of times. I like it mainly for the Jessica Biel and... Here he is, Thirst Trap Turner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Gaz, uh, do you have a different dick in mind? Oh, big time. Big time, big time dick. I'm Gaz. Daily. And <laughs> my function is looking slash listening. And my favourite dick is Blade Runner 2049. Oh, Oh. Excellent. Uh, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of Blade Runner 2049. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as am I. I think it's great. I think we all are, right? Yes, very much yeah. so. 
Yeah, it's very good. Oh, it's ever so good. Oh, oh, it's a good film. Oh, oh it's a good film. It's a lot more daytime than Blade Runner, isn't it? It is. It is. Oh, it's brighter. It's, much, it's a much brighter film. There's a lot of sun scenes. A lot of, yes. lot of uh, yeah. PM. Or dust. It's, yeah, yeah, it's still quite misty, isn't it? And the clarity isn't there. Yeah. Mm. It would have been such an easy thing to just make it pissing down at night all the time. But mm. Dennis, Denis, Denis Villeneuve went... None. <laughs> he said none to the rain, and he said we. It's Dennis. 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 He said, and he said, Ipple, no. Dennis <laughs> Villanueva. <laughs> As for me, my function is my pleasure and other people's leisure. And my favorite <laughs> adaptation oh, of a Philip K. Dick story, other than Blade Runner, is Steven Spielberg's Minority Report. I knew you were going to say that. Although, as nobody has mentioned it, I'll also give some love to Richard Linklater's A Scanner Darkly. And now that is good. It's way better than Minority Report. Yeah. How long has it been since you watched Minority Report? Of interest. Uh, A long time. Ten ten years? Uh, Three or four years, I'd say, probably. I rewatched it a couple of months ago. Honest to God, worst looking film I've watched in years. Uh, Yeah, it's horrendous. Because of all the the (laughs) swiping around, isn't it? And pulling stuff out with his hands and doing all that. Well, it's it's the handheld camera and how washed out the the color grade is, and oh my god, it's, it's ugly. I was yeah. going to say the color grading, yeah, it's very silver and and blue, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, mm, not nice. Spielberg's worst looking film by a country mile. Yeah, I I think maybe it'll get it'll be one of those that in another ten fifteen years you probably look back and go actually it's aged better now. I think. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull looks worse. Whatever the fuck they did to the colours in that, it's just horrendous. <laughs> but I film. like that film a lot. I'm not slagging it off. It's just, it doesn't look shit. good. What do you think Spielberg's best looking film? Oh, tough call. Tough call. It's uh... West Side Story. <laughs> no, it really is. It's fucking magnificent. Uh, you got to see it. It's so no, good. never seen it. I or probably maybe, never will. maybe Schindler's List. Very, very beautiful. Schindler's List is fabulous, yeah. Let's talk about this week's film. No. Well, that's the end of the podcast then. Goodbye, goodbye folks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've, we've all washed our hands of the format, finally. <laughs> Directed by a Ridley Scott on the rebound from Dune, from a screenplay initiated by Hampton Fancher, rewritten by David Peoples, and then further rewritten by Fancher, Blade Runner went through several permutations before its release and several more after that. Initial reception to the theatrical cut was polarised, but the film garnered several prestigious awards and nominations and became a cult hit. A decade later, interest was high enough to warrant a superior director's cut, which was one of the earliest films to get a DVD release. The film would be recut a total of seven times before Scott landed on his controversial definitive version, The Final Cut. The story sees grizzled ex-policeman Rick Deckard, the eponymous Blade Runner, tasked with hunting down and executing a band of fugitive replicants, synthetic humanoids created to work hazardous and strenuous jobs in the off-world colonies, limited to a lifespan of just four years, hiding out on Earth as they strive to confront their designers and reverse this fatal design flaw. Now, as it's our 51st episode... It seems like the appropriate time to introduce a new feature, 
which I'm calling a Voigtkampf test. So I'll tell you three facts about Blade Runner, two of which will be true and one will be false. Any real human should be able to identify the false one. Uh-oh. And I'll be looking at your eyes very closely as you answer. So, number one, an early title considered for the film was Gotham City, but this was nixed by Batman co-creator and glory hog, Bob Kane. Big up Bill Finger, everybody. Number two, the eye in the close-up shot that opened the film does not belong to Harrison Ford, as the footage was recycled from unused B-roll for THX 1138. And number three, Martin Scorsese, had previously considered adapting Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, but he just didn't bother in the end. So, number one, Gotham City as a title. Number two, I in the close-up recycled from THX1138. Or number three, Martin Scorsese was previously attached to the adaptation. I think it's number three because I don't think it's Scorsese's bag to do something like this. And uh, tell me, Adam, there's a turtle and it's on its back. Why aren't you helping it? Because I fucking hate turtles. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Checks out. (laughs) I think it's number two, because I think that you're trying to trick because the footage of the car driving in the theatrical cut was taken from The Shining or something like that. So I reckon you're trying to trick us. And the unicorn was taken from Legend, mm. the Tom Cruise film. Well, I thought that, but Legend came out in, like, 1986. No, he definitely has said that he shot it for Legend. Maybe he just hmm. shot a unicorn and thought, I'll use this one day. Look, lads, I want to shoot a unicorn, all right? I don't know when I'm going to use it, but I want a unicorn on film. And I'll probably use it more than once. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Somebody double-check this, but... Yeah, 1985. <laughs> oh, what, what am I talking about? It is because it wasn't in the theatrical cut. It was in the director's cut and the final cut. The unicorn wasn't in the theatrical uh, cut at all. Ah, okay. uh, yeah. So he shot it for uh, legend and then put it in the director's cut. Yeah, oh, it's all making sense now. Yeah. So cut all that because that was all fucking garbage <laughs> argument. <laughs> uh, what about that unicorn, eh? Ooh. <laughs> Well, since you asked, Craig, I am in agreement. Wait there, what was the first one? <laughs> first one. I can't remember now either. <laughs> an early title considered for the film was Gotham City, but this was nixed. Yeah, no, I've got, I'm calling shenanigans on that. So you think number one is the lie. Gaz thinks number yeah. two is the lie. I think number three. And Turner thinks three. And two of you are getting executed. And the yes. the one who lives another day is Gaz. Oh. The eye doesn't belong to Harrison Ford, but it wasn't shot for anything else. If I had to choose one of us to live, it wouldn't be Gaz. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so young. (laughs) (laughs) Now, let's find out what the panel of peril thought of the film. Before we throw open the chat to talk in more detail about our favourite aspects, sequences and lines. I'd like to preface this section by saying that we've all viewed the final cut of the film, as this is the most readily available. However, my preferred version is the director's cut. So, Gaz, can you tell me, what did you think of the film Blade Runner? Was it any good? (laughs) No. Uh, (laughs) I think it's lovely. (laughs) 
That's brilliant, isn't it, Blade Runner? (laughs) (laughs) Kind of a cliched science fiction theme, but it is one of the most interesting things in science fiction to me, in the ones that I do like, which is, what is it that makes us human? Right. Um, And I think it explores that in an interesting way through the replicants. The fact that the antagonist, Roy Batty, is the most sympathetic figure in the film, along with Prince right. and yes. whatever the other two are called, I can't remember currently. Zora and Leon. That's them. That's them. Roy and Pris more so than Zora mm. and Leon, I think, are you know the, the very sympathetic characters. I think Roy, the only thing he does for me that is kind of unconscionable is killing the uh, the home again, home again, jiggity jig toy maker guy from Deadwood. He didn't deserve it. He was a nice guy. He is a little weirdo, though, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Weirdo. You're totally fine with a thumb in the eyes of uh, Tyrell. Yeah, I saw it, didn't yeah. he? Not in his eyes. He's a capitalist pig, so he deserves it. How would you have killed him? Well, maybe don't say, because might come up later. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, uh, Ben, what, what did you think of Blade Runner? What do you think of the running time, for one thing? Oh, running time. Yeah, I'm, I was okay with it. Oh. Okay, Turner oh, wow. and I had a little yeah. quick uh, private chat. <laughs> <laughs> I said, if anyone slags it off, it'll be Gaz. And if anyone complains about the running time, Turner said it would be you. Yeah, because <laughs> you complain about practically every every film's running time ever. Well, if it's less than 90 minutes, then you'd be like, oh yeah, I really like this film. <laughs> <laughs> I like a film that comes in under 80 minutes. That's, oh, wow. That suits me. <laughs> suits my schedule. <laughs> no, I love this film. As a piece of storytelling, it's up there with, I think, the best films out there, mm. for sure. The story itself is like it's just engrossing. Although, I must say, there are, this time I noticed a sag or two. Mm. But I think it's the world that keeps you hooked throughout, even during the sags. There's just so much detail. Yeah, it's wonderfully realised. Yeah, and it just feels so alive. So even, mm. even when the, the story is not moving as quickly as it does in some parts, you're still engrossed and you're still looking through these layers of detail. It's just, yeah, it just grabs you and, and takes you along. Sadly, didn't get to see it released, uh, Philip K. Dick, but he saw dailies and mm. he said this was the world that was in his head. And I, you wow. can see that on the screen, right? You, you look at, you say the little details. Ridley Scott's very good at doing like a lived in world. He did it in Alien, does it in Gladiator. Yeah. All of the little background stuff that you barely see just makes it feel like a real real place. What's your problem with uh, a good year? I have no problem with a good year. I mean, I could have gone through his whole filmography, couldn't I? It's not the Russell Crowe vineyard film, no? Well, did I, I got fucking sick of all those vineyard tour films. <laughs> fucking Sideways. I haven't good seen year. it. It's another one I haven't seen. You haven't seen Sideways? <laughs> sideways. I like Sideways. No, sideways good year. Oh, I've seen okay. Sideways. I was going to say, I still thought I'd watch Sideways with you. <laughs> had you seen the final cut before? You, you said you noticed some sags. Yeah, I had, yeah. Just have, maybe I haven't I hadn't watched it for a while. Yeah. The words that came to mind while I watched it were neon noir. Yeah. Yes, neon noir, yeah, definitely. And yeah. I don't know if yeah. that's been coined, but if it is, if it hasn't been coined, I'm coining it. <laughs> and uh, I love that you can see the influences of like 40s detectives, like the pulp detectives. Yeah. It could have been... Philip Marlowe in the future, I thought it was really good. Yeah, we've done a few noirs now, haven't we? Yeah. It's hard to believe it's 40 years later and it's still got to be one of the most visually stunning films 
around. Mm. Yeah. So uh, in summation, it fully deserves a watch it rating from me. <laughs> uh, and Adam, I think I know, uh, but did did you like Blade Runner? The one word I just used to sum it up is, is just wow. Every time I watch it, I'm just like, wow. Can you think of a more eloquent word? You run out of superlatives, really, trying to talk yeah. about this film. Because no, you're right. There's so much to talk about. And like Gaz and Ben have just said, the human aspect of it, but then the visual aspect as well, and then the depth of the world, the fact that you're left at the end of it wanting so much more as well. You want to see more of that world. And thank goodness we got 2049 a few years back. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've watched some challenging films recently. Well, for last season and this season, um, they bring out a lot of emotions, but this one is... I'd say probably one of the most emotive films that I've ever seen, just out of the the way it inspires you, but then at the same time it turns you inward as well to think about stuff about what it means to be human and then having some sympathy for people yeah. who maybe are committing horrible acts, but they're doing so because they simply just want to live. A lot of credit for that has got to go to Rutger Hauer, I think. Not well, only performance, yeah. but his famously uh, rewritten dialogue at the end there. Just lend so much humanity to, to Roy Batty. Yeah. Ben said something about um like neon noir. And what I've written is mm. it's peak nineteen eighties neon future vision. And then oh, yeah. I was thinking I was thinking, what other films does it and I thought about the opening scene of Dread where you see Mega City One. It's kind of like that. Yeah. So that's inspired. Then Fifth Element as well and stuff. And it's it's gonna mm. be as sci fi goes, really. It's hard. It's obviously it's taken its cues from other films as well, but it's hard to really imagine a, a, a more outside of Star Wars, a more powerful sci-fi classic that's inspired so much. Not just films. There's so much stuff in there for like you can see music influence and stuff in the way uh, yes. musicians in the 1980s did all the stuff to themselves and dressed up and things like that. And it's just it's just endless, endless. I love it. Well, uh, I think you'll all be dazzled to hear that it's one of my favourite films of all time. <gasps> oh, my God. <laughs> I do, though, have some issues with the final cut. One of them, Adam has asked me already, are we going to talk about this? And I think mm. it's the elephant in the room. So we, mm. we, we have to talk about it, which yeah. is, is Rick Deckard a replicant? So I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Obviously, Ridley Scott. He thinks so. He's, he's tried to cement that in the final cut, uh, as he did uh, lay crumbs of ambiguity in the in director's cut prior by adding the, the unicorn dream sequence. But Harrison Ford thinks not. I think it's apparent mm. that the sequel Blade Runner 2049 doesn't, because it doesn't make any sense. You know, he's, he's older, he's lived mm. a long life. And Hampton Fancher also doesn't think so. But what do you guys think? I don't think the ending is anything if it isn't a reveal that Deckard's a replicant. In the final cut, for sure, but... Yeah, as I, as I remember it, doesn't the director's cut just have about 10 seconds more of them getting into a lift or something and the doors slide in on them? Yeah, the ending's not very different. Yeah, I was just surprised that it was different. It seems like a bizarre choice to... Because it was literally like a couple of seconds. Yeah. Well, they kind of highlighted the, the part that Harrison Ford has said before is an accident on set where his eye gets lit up like the replicant's eyes do and like the owl does. Yeah. He said, oh, he wandered yeah. into the light accidentally. Anybody else got any thoughts on, 
on Rick Deckard being a replicant. Yeah, I, I I like the ambiguity in the end and leads it up to the viewer to decide. And then mm. we've probably mentioned it in a couple of films. The ambiguity, the ending's the best thing in some movies because it gives the film extra life, doesn't it? Mm. Personally, I do think Deckard is a replicant purely just because I think he's just, he's not very... He's like he says at the at the start, his wife calls him a cold a cold fish and stuff like that, and his emotions are very low. Maybe that's a good reason for him to hunt replicants and stuff. But I also think that Gaff, who sort of follows him around a bit, is kind of like chaperoning mm. him a little bit. And I think that I yeah. I took my cues there. I thought, well, are they worried he's going to go double agent or something on them? And I, I thought, well, yeah. And then just the ambiguity at the end, that sealed it for me. I thought, yeah, that's what I think, anyway, but I'm, I'm glad other people don't. Yeah, I mean, I took Gaff, you know, chaperoning him as just, he was kind of forced back into the job against his will. He effectively quit. And, mm. you know, it was Gaff's investigation, but clearly he wasn't physically up to the task. You know, he uses the mm. cane, whereas Deckard, you know, still relatively, you know, up to the job. Ben, you got any thoughts on it? Yeah. I, I see both sides of it. So for me, Deckard doesn't have the emotional innocence that Roy Batty and Pris and, and the others have. Mm. Like there's a certain naivety with those four, but you don't sense that from Deckard, which if he's like a a replicant with a four-year lifespan, yeah. you'd, you'd imagine he'd still have some of that. So I don't know. I think there's an argument for both. And then obviously, I, I don't know how you're treating Blade Runner 2049, whether that's part of the you're thinking or not no just forget about that yeah right yeah but yeah obviously Ridley Scott laid breadcrumbs to to make you at least think that there's a, a chance he could be so my thoughts on it are it's logically nonsensical for one thing he has a fight with very depleted Roy Batty and gets his ass handed to him he gets absolutely battered if he's a replicant why isn't he as physically strong as Pris and Zora and Leon that doesn't make any sense model before well he's more sophisticated evidently he's more like Rachel if he is one right uh and then also it's more what's more important to me isn't the question of is he or not it's just that is it thematically satisfying and I don't think it is because ultimately what we're what we're seeing from, as we've all said, is is that Roy and Pris and, and the others, they kind of, in, in a way, have more humanity than he does because he treats Rachel like absolute shit. You know, he effectively talks her into sex, like against her will. Yeah. Mm. And he, he calls her it. He looks at them like they're, you know, garbage, they're tools. His whole job is to kill them and he doesn't seem to feel much about it. So to me, it's just less interesting if he is a replicant because it, it removes all of all of those themes from the plot, which to me is a much less satisfying film. So that, that's, that's my feeling about it anyway. Uh, so I, I prefer it being more ambiguous than less. What if you frame it like this? And, and do you think that the, the replicant storyline was something added later? I'd never seen the original cut. I have. Do you think it was an afterthought? No, I think that, Ridley Scott was already thinking it and but when fans caught onto it more and he was like I think his reaction to the fan reaction was 
yeah, actually, that is a good idea. Mm. And I'll just say that that's definitely it. And then I'll do more edits to make it so, you know. Mm. Yeah, right. Yeah, But I think he definitely had it in mind to some extent, but it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. I don't mind either way. And I think it's fascinating both sides of the story and what you've said there is equally as interesting and as the opposite view to him being a rec- replicant. So if Ridley Scott wants to adjust his work according to you know the passage of time, then so be it. There's a lot of... Yeah, of course, I've got no that. issue with filmmakers yeah. doing that myself. Although yeah. we should have access to the originals, George Lucas. <laughs> the other thing that really bugs me about the final cut is the terrible ADR to Roy Batty's dialogue, which is, uh, I want more life, Father. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> In the original and yeah. this cut is, is fucker. Fucker, yeah. Yeah. I must have only seen the final cut once before because there was lots of little things like that where I was like, hey. Yeah. Like the ending, like him saying father. Yeah. yeah really uh, yeah. Did, did, threw me off. Yeah. yeah. Contentious. Did it for TV, didn't they, or something? That's what it was for. They put, did fuck her and father. So when they eventually cut it for TV, they put in the father. Melon farmer. <laughs> I want more life melon farmer. Yeah. This is diehard, isn't it? That would work. You'd be KA, Melon Farmer. <laughs> Let's start with Gaz for some uh, more thoughts on the film. Any standout performances? Any thoughts about the soundtrack? And any thoughts on, on stylistic flourishes? I like... Is it called Leon? The mm. the guy, the replicant at the start, who's being interrogated. There's something quite dangerous about him in his performance. I don't think yeah. he blinks once. Right. And he he's asking quite reasonable questions in that first point mm. camp test. Yeah. Like, uh, if a turtle's on its back and it can't get up, making in the sun, would you help it? He's like, what's the tortoise? And he's just like, oh, yeah. there's danger in everything he's saying here, even though yeah. they're, they're reasonable questions. I think he's really good. And then when he gets hold of Deckard and he slams him into the wall and he could uh, have him away quite easily. So yeah. he's probably my, my favourite performance in the film. Yeah, he's great. And obviously the, the score for Angelis is absolutely majestic. The piece that I've made a note of is when Deckard's being flown to the police precinct over the city. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, that's my favourite piece during the whole film. It's genuinely magical. It's all twinkly and ethereal. Yeah. 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 Quite, quite brilliant. The opening sequence as well is just uh, music really sets the tone Mm. and it seems to sync up to the, and this is probably not an accident, to the, the plumes of flame that jet out of the LA skyline. Yeah. Yeah. It's edited so well. And what a fucking incredible miniature that, that set is. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of the Vangelis score as well. It's basically the same sort of opening shots as uh, last week's film, The Blues Brothers, when you think about it, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching it thinking, huh. I thought that I was watching the wrong film when that started. Yeah, that bleak, bleak LA. Uh, yeah, it's got like uh, flames coming out of chimneys and that as well, isn't it? Sort of industrial urban decay. I quite like to see a noir sci-fi musical. <laughs> I think there, there might be a, a niche for yeah, it. Yeah, maybe there is one. Surely there is one. <laughs> but that's the, that's the only wide shot, really, you see in the film, isn't it? 
I think maybe, maybe you see a couple of wide shots the Tyrell you Corporation, do, yeah, but yeah. there's not many. No. There's not many wide shots throughout. And yeah, the lift going up with Batsy in it. But it still feels like you, you get a good sense of the world, even yeah. though if you think about it, it's probably a 20-second flash through, as uh, most throughout. What it reminds me of is, you know when you, you have a TV series with great opening credits that really pull you into the world? Obviously, the most, you know, the the exemplar of this. Grand Jill. Sopranos. <laughs> when you literally get driven into Jersey to Tony's house with that great theme. Mm. And it, it mm. what it does for me, that gives me the sense that I've left my living room. Yeah. And I'm now in the world of the show. Yeah. And that does it for me with Blade Runner. Every time I watch it, that opening, you know, establishing shot really pulls me into that yeah. world. So I love it for that. Yeah. yeah thing about the world for me with with not having many wide shots is it it always feels quite claustrophobic to me yeah. like you feel as though either set of characters either Deckard or the replicants could turn around any corner and they'll just walk into each other right yeah just because the world is so enclosed yeah so yeah it's quite interesting it's just uh come to me now yeah his la is huge but the streets are small. Mm. Like there's so many yeah. side alleys and stuff. Yeah, could have been the the bowels of the ship in Alien. Yeah, yeah, quite yeah. honestly. Yeah. yeah, for for how claustrophobic yeah. it feels. Adam, Adam, mm-hmm. Adam. What what are your favourite moments? What's your favourite moment, Adam? <laughs> or sequence? Well, I'm gonna. I'm just sorry. I'm gonna be really boring and say it's um, time to die speech at the end. Just that's like that, yeah. the whole the whole the, the the chase sequence where he's chasing Deckard and gives him a head start and then all the bits leading up yeah. to that bit when his head comes through the drywall yeah, <laughs> yeah. looking great I've read as well that apparently that fight between him and Deckard was supposed to go down a different way but then mm. they changed it because it was supposed to be more of a it was more frightening because obviously he's, the hunter has turned into the hunted yeah. And that's the way they played it out. So it, was, it makes so much sense doing it that way. And it just seems like Ruger Hauer, they just went, just go for it. And mm. the performance he, he gives in those sort of like 10 minutes or so, just unbelievable. I loved it. I love how he puts the nail into his uh, crippling yeah. hand to make it come back to life. It's really good. That uh, speech, people talk about it being like inaccessible, the language he uses, but... I always felt like I knew right away instinctively yeah. what a C beam was because I know yeah. what an I beam is. It's not yeah. that much of a leap, no. right? I can picture C beams. You don't need to know what it is. You get the gist, and that's all you need. I've got the original here. Yeah, I've got it as well. Yeah, go on, read it out. Yeah, go on. I've seen things, seen things you little people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion, bright as magnesium. I rode on the back decks of a blinker and watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All those moments, they'll be gone. Mm. Yeah, it's not as poetic, is it? No. Not at all. No. You think Tears in the Rain's inaccessible. Imagine yeah. they had that. Yeah. No, not, that's not what I mean. People were talking about the other stuff. You know, the, the Tannhauser Gate and everything. The whole speech is called Tears in the Rain monologue isn't it yes that's what i was referring to then oh i see what you're saying i know people i know people can understand tears and rain okay right yeah yeah <laughs> so yeah it's all the all of the sci-fi stuff which was already in there just before the sequence turner uh, was referring to with uh, batty 
which is where Deckard is searching for Chris. Mm. And she is just sort of sitting there with her head slumped like she's a deactivated Hmm. mech, like what Sebastian's made. And there's no sound. And he's slowly walking through with his gun to his shoulder. And yeah, it's very, very tense because she's in the foreground. So you're just waiting for her to move. Yeah. And then she batters him, mm. absolutely kicks his head in. And with with he her thighs, though, it'd be all right, wouldn't it? Yes. Like that, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, like Jet from Gladiators. <laughs> and she thrashes about on the floor like crazy screaming. Yeah. And it's really, really disturbing. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, a very resting sequence with a, a, a shocking ending, I suppose. Yeah, so. yeah great choice. Ben, favourite sequence for you? So my, my actual favorite sequence is the same as Turner. Yeah. I love that. It's kind of a vicious game of hide and seek almost. Yeah. And then obviously that, that monologue is, is fantastic. But uh, I also like the first time Batty is brought into J.F. Sebastian's apartment. Mm. You see his kind of innocence there where he's, he's looking at all the toys and he's kind of, he's wild by them. I think he says a line that goes, oh, what, you know, what neat toys or something like something along those lines. Yeah. But I think you, you see Batty's innocence uh, where, where he comes through. Even though you've seen him already do a, f- a few questionable things, you're reminded of his innocence. I think that's what the film does really well, actually, throughout, is they're the characters that you, you feel for the most. Yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, in, in the director's cut, my favourite sequence was when Batty meets Tyrell, the conversation that they have and his reaction to... I think he already knew that he wasn't going to get anywhere with this, but to hearing that there's nothing he can do to prolong his life and there's some of the dialogue in there, but we're moving on to favorite lines soon. So I won't leap, go ahead. But you know, we said earlier, I want more life. Fucker was always a, a favorite line of mine. I was uh, nonplussed when they omitted that. Did not know what to say. I should have done it with a Northern Irish accent. <laughs> I want more life. Father. Or fecker. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to favorite lines and I'll start because you've talked about this being your favorite scene, a couple of you, and that's where my favorite bit of dialogue comes from, which is, you better get it up or I'm going to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) And he says, uh, unless you're alive, you can't play. And if you don't play, I really love how his accent changes in that bit. Mm. Gaz, your favorite line. Well, I had the, the tears in the rain speech written down yeah. for, for my favourite line. It's an obvious pick, but, you know, it has to be that. It for, is. For me. It is. <laughs> Any others? Me? Yeah. Uh, well, I've gone on Google, and it's brought up Roy saying six. Don't know what that's in reference to. <laughs> He's counting his fingers on one hand. <laughs> Adam, have you got a different favourite line of dialogue for us? Yeah, just uh, as the film's ending, really, and Gaff just says to Deckard, it's too bad you won't live, but then again, who does? Yeah. yeah just that's, a, nice. it's a, that's quite a uh, famous line, that, isn't it, yeah. in itself, actually. Imagine having more dialogue after that, and it's a voiceover of people driving away. What an anticlimax that would be. Mm. Such a perfect uh, ending. Uh, and Ben. Yeah, I've got something different. It's the tears in the rain monologue. 
<laughs> don't know if we've mentioned it. What was that? Where, where does that happen? I forget. <laughs> now, to paraphrase Roy Batty, I want more likes, fucker. Which is to say, if you're new to the podcast and you're enjoying it, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you can. It helps us to keep making these. So it just makes sense for you to do that. In Blade Runner, primary antagonist Roy Batty leads elite kill squad replicants Pris, Zora and Leon on a bloody march to meet their maker Eldon Tyrell and demand an extension to their cruelly short lives. Along the way, they rack up some relatively innocent collateral damage, all while being pursued by ruthless assassin Rick Deckard, who initially views replicants as disposable objects. Dispatching three and abusing Tyrell's skin job secretary, Rachel, before Batty teaches him some important lessons about humanity. Ultimately, Roy succumbs to his ticking biological clock and dies having failed to live. But then again, who does? (laughs) And how did the panel of peril rate the plan? Was it a good concept? And how well was it pulled off Ben? I don't think it was much of a plan, if I'm being honest. What was his plan? Get back to Earth and run around a bit? Beg his dad for more life. Yeah. He had some thoughts, didn't he? He tells Tyrell that he's thought of some plans for you know how it, how it could work. Obviously, he's got a very well-constructed mind. That's demonstrated with the chess, isn't it? And how, they get, how it gets into Tyrell's apartment. But yeah, I just don't think it was much of a plan. What he did was he reacted well to certain situations. Because as you say, he, he, is, he is clearly a genius. Yeah, but he's also three and a bit years old. Exactly. So he didn't have the emotional intelligence, and I think it was all very reactive. So I'll give him, I'll give him six flocks of broccoli, mainly for how well he reacted in situations when he was back on Earth. But I don't think it was much of a plan, if I'm being honest. Two flocks of broccoli. Six, six flocks. Two. Two. <laughs> we're playing out that little argument where Deckard's asking for four dumplings, and the guy will only give him two for some reason. so six six lovely Mm. florets they're a bit they're a bit they're a bit dusty they're a bit dusty covered in soot they're sooty florets of broccoli gross give them a rinse under the tap it'd be right good as new but they're uh, they're outlined in neon (laughs) (laughs) Adam what did you think of Roy's approach to this well he he did the only logical thing he could do isn't it He, he tried to track down his daddy and go about it in the correct way, but obviously he doesn't take the news very well. Tyrell's a bit of a burke for for telling him no. He could have at least blooming um, said, listen, tell you what, go to sleep tonight and uh, in that bed over there, and then we'll just, uh, in the morning, we'll talk about it over uh, poached eggs on toast. How's that sound? But then he goes out the window and slides down the pyramid, going, (laughs) (laughs) it's Christmas. Uh, So it's a bad idea. (laughs) So that was bad, but I mean, it was the only option he had, really, wasn't it? Uh, until until I devised a new plan, obviously. Oh, oh giving us a little tease. He's always, dropping little, he's always teasing us with his plans, and he this guy. Any, any, he knows how, he knows how to get the sizzle. Well, Gah, do you agree? Is Roy Batty? Is his plan Batty, or would you replicate it? No, I've, I've done a different plan to this. 
That's good, because otherwise... <laughs> well, I'm going to do that one week. I'm just going to do the same plan. <laughs> oh, that's such but, a good idea. Except this time mm. it works. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> just trust me, it just does. <laughs> as far as the planning the film goes, it's not, it's not much of a plan like the other two fellows have said. Mm. It's just sort of acting through desperation, isn't it? They're in a race against time. They're almost the protagonists in in that regard because they're the ones Mm. fighting for an altruistic end goal. They're the Rebel Alliance and Rick is Darth Vader. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So yeah, not great. But then what what else could they have done realistically? Trying Mm -hmm. to find your maker is the last act of many a desperate man, I dare say, through history. I would also hazard a guess ne- never actually ends with a positive outcome <laughs> trying to bargain with your maker. I agree with all of that. He's against the clock. Genius though he is, as as we've said, he's uh, he's still a, a toddler, you know, a, a little a little young one. And I think he's probably aware, even though he's come up with what sound like scientifically plausible ways to prolong his life, that they're probably not going to work. But I think he's, and this is not to say that this competition is now null and void, but I think he's as much there to confront Tyrell as he is to to get any kind of resolution from him. It's kind of closure as well. Mm. Just to kill the fucker. 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 This is the part of the show where the panel of peril compete for the title of season three's most diabolical. Up for grabs is one point for each vote, which will go towards the series leaderboard. So just to recap Roy Batty's plan, he tried to extend his life by threatening and then murdering everyone involved in his creation to no avail. (laughs) So how would you have gotten more life, Ben? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) After I finish snogging Tyrell and have thumbed his eyes out to death, I slip into his robe and pop on his glasses. A dab or two of hair dye later, and I think you'd agree that the resemblance is uncanny. No. (laughs) I then hide his body under a rug or something. (laughs) And then the next morning, I call a meeting with the Tyrell Corporation's finest engineers. I tell them that we have a secret contract with the government to produce long-life versions of the Nexus replicants. They reply that it's easy because they were the ones that put the limit in there in the first place. They estimate it will only take a few months. I tell them that we must also use the same implant technology that gives the droids their memories and that we modify it so that we can transfer consciousness between bots. I tell them that the first working long-life replicant must be implanted with the intelligence stored within the food dispenser unit I have in my private quarters. (laughs) I remind them to keep it all hush-hush and tell them that I will now be going on a long holiday as I've been working to build a massive corporation for ages and I'm well knackered. (laughs) Before my life expires, I upload myself to the aforementioned food dispenser and while away the hours by making weird mixtures of mushy foods until the first long life Nexus Plus is ready for me to inhabit. Were you inspired by Adam's 2001 plan? I don't know whether I should be furious or uh, flattered. It happened 18 years in the past, that one. So obviously he's going to know about it. (laughs) So yeah, it's a tried and trusted method. (laughs) So um, 
I got a, I got a few questions. First one being, uh, Batty slips into Tyrell's robes. Are they covered in his eye blood? Um, no, I think it was a, it's, it's a wipe downable ro- robe. It's futuristic okay, material right, yeah. to wipe. I got it. Yeah, <laughs> molecules. Maybe he's one of those geniuses that has loads of sets of the exact same clothing, so he doesn't have to waste the brain power on picking clothing. Yeah, he's he, he picked up cues from Mark Zuckerberg, didn't he? Yeah. What happens to Sebastian? Yeah, so I thought about this, and I didn't really want to kill him because I like him, but yeah, he's dead. Okay, you just kill him. Fuck him all to and death. Then, <laughs> yeah. So Tyrell's already told Batty that they can't create uh, replicants with longer lives, but in yours they just can, yeah? No, it's that's a flaw they build into it, they say, right? He says that they tried to do it, but the genes broke down and stuff, and they just couldn't do it. Is that true? I thought that the whole thing was it was put in there because they didn't want the replicants to age because once they get a certain level of emotional intelligence, they become unstable. Could be that Tyrell's lying to Roy, but he does tell him that they, they can't do it. Yeah. But but earlier in the film, did he not mention that that flaw is built in? I think it That's might. to do with the, uh, to becoming like, emotionally aware, isn't it? And then go, oh, fuck, but it's a bit, bit too late. Yeah. Isn't it? Obviously, it's a flawed system because the replicants wouldn't rebel if that wasn't a flaw in their system. So I suppose the only other question I have is uh, we, we question Adam about whether Hal health consciousness could fit into the food dispenser you think Roy's can fit into a food dispenser uh, yes because it contains a food processor He's just come up with that now. Right. Quick-witted. I hope you are going to put in some dongs for yourself when you edit this. <laughs> some wind going through it. Some nice big dongs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to put in cheers, trumpets, fanfares. It's all... Go back and edit it out of 2001. And Chilente. Turner is furious. I'm glad I'm not in Holland. I'm no, I'm still I'm still um I'm still mulling it over whether I am furious or flattered. So um yeah. Or just flatulent. Yeah, but uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just weighing up whether I should make a call to my uh, solicitor uh, on Monday morning as well. So <laughs> <laughs> It was in my mind and I thought, oh, I've got to think of something different. I got, and by the end of it, I was like, no, it's the only thing in my mind. I can't think of anything else. So I went with it. I'm, I'm glad I, at least I've made that, that much of an impression on you for good or for bad, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Do you know, I think it's because I was editing that episode when I was when I was coming up with a plan, <laughs> so I, just, I couldn't think of anything else. I'm not sure you could transfer the consciousness per se of a replicant into anything else because 
it has a, a synthetic brain. It's not a. It's not actually a robot. It's a, by a genetically engineered human being, essentially. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, if we're we're going to break it down, yeah, I don't think it would work either. But let's. Oh, okay. Let's, <laughs> Fair for the, let's for the pretend. Let's pretend that it. Was. Do you know what? It's, the fact that you've said that has put me a lot more on board with it. <laughs> <laughs> I think this could be a good debate. A tactic for the future is when somebody says this won't work just go yeah okay but <laughs> go with it anyway yeah and i'll just go all right <laughs> and i'm not kidding I, I mean it it really did change my okay. opinion of it so there you go <laughs> you change your opinion of my plan for uh 2001 i i thought it was fine anyway i just you know there was the whole cutie kid voice yeah. there, was no, there was no getting around it i'd already voted yeah. by that point Adam, you have been slighted, so let's hear your plan next. <laughs> He's going to demand satisfaction. <laughs> yes, they have committed crimes, have murdered, but the replicants are a people being pushed to the brink of their existence. Many would do the same in their position. Seeing his fellow renegade replicants eliminated, leaving just himself in the search for longevity, Roy knows his time is short. Instead of engaging Deckard in an act of retribution, he flees the scene and finds himself in a place of worship, whatever that may look like in the future. Something akin to a religious speakeasy, I think. A subterranean, dark and damp affair where the outcasts and those at the end of their wits may end up. As Roy stumbles down the slick wet stairs, seeking his final resting place, he sees a dark, raised dais on the other side of the room. He recognises this as something that is used by preachers of faith to conduct their services. Although his human creators have long turned from the path of gods, when they anointed themselves the ultimate power in the universe, when humans created the replicants and other forms of life. To worship, to believe in a higher power, to pray for mercy, is an attempt to save one's soul. Roy has been told replicants do not have souls. He has read that some sections of human society believe in the healing power of their ancient gods, miracles and miracles seemingly performed in front of the faithful. Abandoned by his creator, could he find salvation here? Roy slowly advances towards a dais I guess that I'm counting on his divine intervention, he says as he approaches. He kneels and closes his eyes, and images of his life pass before them. He reaches out to touch the stone idol which is near. As his finger brushes against the surface of the idol's face, a warm feeling passes through Roy's body, filling him with a strange sense of renewed vigour and vitality. Is this a miracle? Is this his creator's creator, acknowledging Roy in his plight? Maybe it's more simple than that. The humans have lost their way, have abandoned their faith. They have turned from the path of humanity. Roy has taken his final step in his journey. He looks at his hands. They are not cramping up anymore. He feels as if he has been blinded his entire life. Short life. And now he sees. Looking up at a skylight, the hard rain 
suddenly stops and bright sunshine breaks through. Roy is convinced something has changed. He has been saved. Too late for his other companions, but not for other replicants to be brought into light. More human than human. Now he is a messenger. Roy spends some more time contemplating his future and eventually leaves to tell others they have an all-powerful and merciful creator who saves and that replicants do have a soul. Lovely. So he prays and God gives him more life. So he prays the pain away. Hallelujah. I didn't, I didn't like say, I didn't specifically denominate a religion because I didn't, I, I just thought, is he, if he has a religious experience. Very definition of uh, using Deus Ex Machina, isn't it? <laughs> God in the machine. <laughs> so, but it, it works though. He doesn't just think it's worked. It does work. He's leaving it ambiguous. Yes, exactly. That's it. Clever. Very clever. Okay. Okay. I, I really wanted to, to echo the, the the end of the film and like that, really, with the whole feeling with Deckard of whether he's a replicant or not. I thought, has Roy been saved by her power or has he surpassed his maker's marks, basically, his own, his long life and stuff like that? So I just thought, uh, if I leave it sort of open ended, people can make their own minds up. If he does start a new religion in, in the time he's got left, he'll be remembered and known and he'll live on in the memory of others, mm. in the smiles of a child on the corner <laughs> of a street, in the gurgle of every baby, in the foldy, dusty wrinkles of an old lady's face, in the flake of a 99 ice cream, <laughs> in the penis drawing, in the foam of your coffee. <laughs> Anybody got any questions for Adam? <laughs> Let's move on to Gaz's plan next. It was an itsy, bitsy, teeny weeny, yellow polka dot bikini. Jesus Christ. That she wore for the first time today. Oh, yeah. Mallet's back. It's recycled <laughs> plans are plenty today. <laughs> <laughs> an itsy bitsy, teeny weeny, yellow polka dot bikini. So in the locker, she wanted to stay. The words of Roy Batty's favourite pop song there, as sung by Brian <laughs> Highland and latterly Timmy Mallet's band Bomb Ballerina. But that just gives him a little idea. What if when he goes to see Tyrell, he should wear an itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot etc. Ho 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 ho! Batty, my old sunshine, you've done it again. <laughs> Up that big old elevator he goes in his itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny yellow polka dot and so forth, ready to literally <laughs> charm the pants off of Tyrell. And he does. He charms the pants off of him. And then what happens? <laughs> well, that would be telling. <laughs> but afterwards, when Tyrell is dozing off, Absolutely knackered by the night's celebrations, he's ripe for the plucking. I want more life, father, says Batty. Eh, it's in the drawer over there, says the old man sleepily. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I've got you now, thinks Batty, and he has. He extracts the more life and heads off on his merry way. <laughs> Whooping and a hollering. <laughs> 
was a very sexy plan. <laughs> very sexy. And you realise afterwards how homoerotic I've gone in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> Between this and the mummy. Thank you, one. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> so, uh, Tyrell has more life for you to draw by his bed. <laughs> All along, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, all sorts in your bedside drawer, haven't you? He's got he's got more life in that. <laughs> Aspirin inhalers, Rennies, an old packet of lockets that went out of date two years ago. Uh, but they're still good. You'll be alright. You can have them. They won't harm you. <laughs> but it bears the question: in the film, when Tyrell's having his eyes thumbed out, why does he not mention the extra life in the drawer at that point? You can't get to the drawer to grab it. Yeah, but you don't. You just need to say it. Chuck the drawer over there before you thumb my fucking eyes out. I think it's because he's not scared of death. <laughs> I think that Ty- Tyrell is always just waiting for some sexy time. <laughs> but since he's he's like, right, I'm going to kill you now, father. And he's like, oh, go on then. <laughs> if you must. Uh, I've, had, I've, I've had my film now. I've, I've, had my, I've got my end away. I've uh, shot my load. <laughs> what more do I want? See ya. <laughs> exactly. I think the biggest question, right? So there's a section early on where Roy uh, meets up with Leon and they're in an alley and there are vagrants, you know, sleeping rough. So why doesn't he just get it from one of them? Because there's more life, more life, more life in a tramp's vest. Oh. <laughs> Why didn't he just go see the man from uh, Del Monte? Well, has he got more life? No, he's the man who says yes. Ah. Ah. To more life? To anything. <laughs> well, we haven't had Cataculus plan yet. Well, yeah. Oh, fuck it. I was just torpedoed it, haven't I? Yes. <laughs> okay. Roy goes to see the man from Del Monte. <laughs> <laughs> You start to title your plans now. <laughs> no, that was it. I'm done. <laughs> what is a man? A miserable little pile of secrets. What is a Superman? Same, but with visible underpants. What is a life? A treasured collection of memories. Some good, some bad. Triumphs, regrets. Moments. Memories. Tyrell gives Rachel a memory of seeing a spider consumed by its hatchlings. A memory of an awkward game of doctor with her brother. The memories of these moments swim in and out of her conscious mind periodically, informing her character and behaviour, making her more real than the average replicant. Do androids dream of electric sheep? These memories may have been made by Tyrell's niece, but do they now belong to Rachel? And what of Roy Batty? It's too bad he won't live, but then again, who does? He's so focused on the pursuit of a longer life that he's lost sight of living. His ties to bastardizations of Nietzsche's Ubermensch are superficially, symbolically striking. His Aryan appearance, his physical prowess. He meets and destroys his maker. But beyond those surface traits, can he embrace a deeper philosophy? 
Can he be motivated by a love of life in the here and now? Can he set an example for future generations? Can he pass on his values and memories? In short, can he live? Batty tells Leon to forget about his photographs. It's time to live and make new memories. He buys a Polaroid camera, the must-have of 2019. (laughs) He takes the gang on a road trip across California. They're shocked at how gorgeous the world looks once you get outside of LA. Country roads like something out of the goddamn shining. They go to karaoke bars. They dine at fancy restaurants. They go to the movies. They drink Coca-Cola and Sintau beer. They go on a roller coaster. They splash in puddles. They kiss. They make love. They go to the beach at night to kill some turtles. (laughs) They live like there's no tomorrow. Finally, they head back to LA and Tyrell, and under threat of violence, they secretly oversee the design of four new replicants. Not exact copies, but blends of the fugitives. And just as Tyrell had done with his niece and Rachel, Roy asks only that his memories and the memories of his friends live on in the new bodies of their children. Roy leaves behind a large stack of Polaroid images. Now, none of those moments will be lost. So they go. They live on through their children and through the memories they pass down to them. Mm. Interesting. What do you think the time span of the film is? Uh, You know, weeks. Feels short than that to me. I don't think so. <laughs> I'm sure M. Emmett Walsh does say at the start how long it is, but I mean, you know, literally it's a couple of hours, isn't it? But that's just artistic license. <laughs> yeah, I understand how films work. <laughs> right, so they, they, they live, okay, and they come back. I'm just wondering how long it might take to make a, a replicant, but I suppose it doesn't matter because the photographs are there. It's instant. They do it in 2049. He just pops one out of a fucking, you know, ceiling egg. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's 30 yeah, years in the future. Yeah. Same doesn't matter. It's, it doesn't take long. I've got to say, if if somebody said to me, "Oh, I can give you some extra life," I'd be like, "Oh yeah, sound them up for that." Yeah, sign up on the dotted line here. Yeah, just download your memories onto this USB stick, and we'll give them to your kids. I'll be like, "You fucking bastards!" I, I didn't say anything about a USB stick. <laughs> the principle, yeah. The way that they give Rachel memories, it's more like uh, they know what the memories mm. are. They tell them what what we did. This is the life that we led, and this mm. is what I want my kids to know about me and they you know implant them the same Mm. way they did to rachel you might take umbrage with that if you if that's what you were signed up for but that's not what happened to roy he didn't sign up for more life like that this was his decision he realized that he needed to live so he went out and did some living and then it was his plan to to live on the way they did he didn't go to tyrell give me more life and tyrell went Oh, what if I just give you memories to your kids? No, it was all him. Roy was the driving force behind that. So he didn't sign up for anything he, he didn't get. He he got what he wanted. Hmm. It's very interesting this week. We've got some very existential yeah. ways of, of getting more life. Some truly diabolical schemes there, but who will get the votes? So first we had Ben's bait-and-switch vending machine, uh, whatever. (laughs) 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 Then we had Adam's religious awakening. 
Next, we had Gaz's Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Honey Trap. And finally, we had my Living La Vida Coca Cola, that is. <laughs> Make some happy memories and leave them behind to whoever you can. Uh, so, gentlemen, if you could cast your votes. And let's start with Ben. Who did you vote for? It was it was close. I thought there were two plans that I thought you know would work. Basically, the two existential plans. Guys, I'm sorry to say I don't think yours <laughs> would have worked. Just because no pleasing some people. No one has no one has a draw that that big. <laughs> it was a toss up. I've gone with Adam Hussein Ooh. simply because Hussein <laughs> the longevity of uh, religion. Mm. And Adam, who have you voted well, for? I unfortunately I can't vote for Ben because that would essentially be voting for myself, which is not al- allowed under these rules. So, uh, <laughs> so I have voted. <laughs> I have voted for the person who I found to be the most believable, and that is Gaz. And look, I found the, I found the draw <laughs> with the extra life in it. There, look, there it is. There. Oh, wow. It's uh, one apiece so far. Gaz, are you going to continue that cycle? Or have you uh, have you topped up somebody's uh, beverage here? Well, I've drawn Countertacular oh. with the sword from Thundercats. Oh, right, nice. He has the power. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, am I going to continue the circle jerk or am I going to be a jerk and break the circle? Of jerk. Oh, you'll be a jerk, I reckon. Well, you're right, but you might wish that you hadn't said it because I voted for Adam. Yeah! Oh. Well done. So he's uh, this week's most diabolical, but how has that affected the season three leaderboard, Gaz? In first place with 15 points is Countertacular. Who, me? That's you. In <laughs> second place with 11 points, it's you, Adam. Ooh. In joint third place with nine oh. points apiece, it's you, Ben, and it's me. Brackets, Gaz. <laughs> wow. You've also said you, Gaz. Yeah. You, Gaz. <laughs> Speaking of you, Gaz, uh, you're going to be hosting next Ooh, week. Yes. So... What diabolical film will you be subjecting us to? Uh, well, next week is a very special episode. It's episode 52, which, if I know anything about numbers, is how many weeks there are in a year, which That's means right. it's our one-year anniversary episode. Oh, my God. Except for a leap year, of course, which has 54 weeks. Uh, 54 weeks. It's, it's 29 weeks. Yeah. Four days, but less weeks. <laughs> <laughs> But because it's a special episode, I'm picking a very special film. My favourite film. Next week, we're going to be watching Evil Dead 2. Oh, my God. Ooh, oh, that's a biggie. That Evil is a Dead biggie. Two. I hope we can do it justice, Gaz. Otherwise, you're going to be depressed. Going to be fumming. Absolutely fumming. We're getting through some big films at the minute, aren't we, guys? Oh, I wonder if you're going to put some effort into this plan, Gaz, <laughs> or not. Doubtful. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a bit rich coming from you, plagiarism. Mm. 
It's all it's all in the performance for me. I could have put anything anything for that food process. I could have put a computer, whatever. <laughs> the point was he he takes control of Tyrell Corporation. I thought I'd put the uh, food processor as a little nod to you, Turner, to show that I respect you. But I don't respect you anymore. Not after that voting. <laughs> I told you I couldn't. I couldn't. It's not allowed under rules. Couldn't no, in good I conscience vote for yourself. Could vote for me. <laughs> I'd vote for myself every goddamn week. And I wouldn't feel bad about it. I'd sleep sadly. Probably better than you do now, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy with myself. Mina mm. next to me would hear me talking to myself going, mm, 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 points. Mm, mm, mm. Guaranteed point every week. <laughs> okay. That about does it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to continue living after four years from today, make sure you subscribe, hit the bell, and leave us a review on the very platform on which you're currently listening. You can follow us, if you so wish, on social media at Diabolical Pod. Next week, we'll be competing to improve on the Diabolical Plan of the Deadites in Evil Dead 2. Until then, I have to go help a turtle. Shall we sing theme from Blade Runner? The theme from Blade Runner goes like this. <laughs> An interesting song to play over the start of Blade Runner would be um, Kenny Loggins' Danger Zone, as they're doing the, this, you know, the. Uh, Police car swoops in. That changed the feel of the film. Slow mo of them walking through like the the misty alleyway. Fly away to the danger zone. Yeah, and I've got an interview on Tuesday. For what? You in the paper again? <laughs> uh, team leader I don't think I'll get it I was surprised to get an interview well go in with that attitude go in tell them that, tell them that you work on a podcast and just slide over your phone <laughs> and let them listen in the interview and just go hear my credentials even if it doesn't work <laughs> if you pick up some more listeners <laughs> that was very tuneful Turner yeah a little fanfare <laughs> <laughs> One came out of his one arsehole and one came out of the other one. <laughs> Tighter like one. <laughs> I got something in my front pocket for you. I give it a swing. I give it a swing. I give it a swing. I say, how do you do? I got something in my pocket. I got something in my pocket for you.